New computer, pretty fancy. It's pretty nice. Somebody came in here and turned up the thermostat to 74 over the weekend. <laughs> and the place is boiling. This yes. is hell. Manufacturing descent since 1996. This is hell. Universities are a public good. Our radio show is broadcast on a university radio station. Universities inject into every community they enter, an institution of Higher education and enlightenment, bringing with them an invigorated culture and society, attracting academics and artists from the world over. Universities provide students, students with spending money, and the contributions by universities to especially urban neighborhoods surrounding campuses and cities across the United States is both seemingly incalculable and mutually beneficial between the university and the people who live near them. While that may have been true in the past, the university is no longer a public good due to neoliberal demands beginning in the late 1970s and continuing to this day to cut taxes at all costs, even if that means slashing federal funding for giving the next generation access to a good education. By cutting that funding, universities had to seek money elsewhere, which meant becoming a a for-profit business in order to survive, abandoning any sense of being a public good. The outcome has been universities becoming like any other exploitative for-profit business, seeking the lowest wages for workers and investing in things like local real estate, where they had a built-in tax-exempt advantage to dominate the industry and impose their urban development model that drives inequality upon locals. In a few minutes, we will reconsider the stereotype of universities' inherent goodness when we will talk to urbanist, historian, and cultural critic Devarian L. Baldwin, author of In the Shadow of the Ivory Tower, How Universities Are Plundering Our Cities. Devarian is Paul E. Rather, Distinguished Professor of American Studies and Founding Director of the Smart Cities Lab at Trinity College. Devarian is also author of Chicago's New Negroes, Modernity, The Great Migration in Black Urban Life, and co-editor with Minka Makalani of the essay collection Escape from New York, the New Negro Renaissance Beyond Harlem. You can follow Devarian on Twitter at Devarian Baldwin. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show, podcast, live streaming host Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is our new Monday producer, our former Tuesday producer, Jess Lipka. Jess, welcome to Mondays, and how was your weekend? It was really nice, yeah. I'm Technically, I was technically on a break, so wow, yeah. <laughs> so, but you now your break is over, classes started up again, yeah, yeah, yeah. First one tomorrow, but yeah, at it, we got uh, my roommate has like an old MGB convertible that we got running, so we took it out yesterday, which is fun. I bet out yeah. on Lakeshore Drive, yeah, yeah, <laughs> that sounds like a blast. So, uh, there's a whole chapter in DeVarian's book on the University of Chicago and the checkerboard lounge, strug- uh, lounge struggle. So I should get you the PDF of this book, so you should because uh, you're a University of Chicago student. You should I, check it I out. Am. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Send that to me. Uh, my weekend started off really, really weird because following Thursday's show, I got the coronavirus vaccine, 
and it just made me feel off. I'm not sure if I was simply happy to be vaccinated or what it was, but I felt like I was kind of high the rest of the day Thursday. And then all Friday, during the Patreon podcast on Friday morning, I felt really weird. I had trouble focusing. I was having trouble reading anything. It was like a a kind of of out-of-body experience in that I had the sensation that I was like an inch behind or above myself, kind of like watching from outside. I, I was seeing spots, flashes of lights that I've heard others also see after getting the Pfizer vaccine. And my arm hurt like hell for a good couple of days. But by Saturday morning, after a good night's sleep, I felt fine. However, I did speak to my sister, who lives in an area that is a current hotspot for COVID infections. Many of her neighbors have had it. A few have died. One just got COVID for the second time. And my sister told me that she had many of the same side effects from the same vaccine. And that the side effects from the second dose of the Pfizer vaccine are even more intense. So I've got that to look forward to. More importantly than any of that, Jess, what is this week's question from hell? This week's question from hell is, what are you not paranoid enough about? (laughs) What are you not paranoid enough about? And uh, a lot of people are telling me I'm not paranoid enough about getting the vaccine. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever this is hell merchandise you want. You can check out all of our merchandise. Our trucker's cap, our winter hat, our coffee mug, our tote bag, our t-shirt, the flash drive history of the 21st century as it has been covered here on This Is Hell. You can find all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on on support. And the person with Our favorite answer to this week's question from Hell will win whatever piece of merchandise they want from that assortment that you can find at thisishell.com when you click on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question mail on our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to me at chuck at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of Thursday's show when we announce the week's winner. Jess will be sharing your answers to this week's question from Hell following DeVarian Baldwin. Again, the question from Hell is, what are you not paranoid enough about? What are you not paranoid enough about? Brave enough to be streaming live. Dumb enough to be goofy. Stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is Hell, and Jess has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is watermelon. I don't know if we've ever done this one before, but we do such a horrible job of (laughs) saving past hangover cures, and I think we've given out over a thousand, so I'm not sure if we've given this one out before. (laughs) All right. Well, according to the Healthline article, the 23 best hangover foods that only had three hangover cures we have not yet shared. (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) Maybe. Um, The story states, since headache associated with a hangover is usually due to dehydration and decreased blood flow to the brain, eating watermelon may help. Citing the peer-reviewed study, the alcohol hangover, and acute and chronic effects of hydration status on health. Those sound like really riveting studies. <laughs> as, as reported in another study, influence of L-sertraline and watermelon supplementation on vascular function and exercise performance, watermelon is rich in, in L-sertraline, a nutrient that may increase blood flow. What's more, the high water content found in watermelon can help you rehydrate. That makes this week's hangover cure watermelon. Who knew? And who knew that there were so many studies about it? And I was no way I'm going to be reading Influence of L-Citrulline and Watermelon Supplementation on Vascular Function and Exercise Performance because I think I know how that ends. 
putting people before profit since 1996, which turns out to be a horrible business model. This is hell. And if you want to help out our horrible business model of putting you ahead of actually making money, you can go to thisishell.com and click on support to find all the ways to help out your friends here at Completely Listener Supported. This is Hell. One way you can contribute is by becoming a subscriber to the weekly This Is Hell Patreon podcast, which happens every Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time and is podcast at the same place shortly after. All you have to do is go to patreon.com slash thisishell, sign up, and you will get immediate access to over 150 Patreon podcasts. It's like an entire extra year of This Is Hell with monologues by me and classic interviews that you cannot find anywhere else online but on Patreon. On last Friday's Patreon podcast, it was another edition of This Week in Hell, a summary of what I get got out of last week's hell, which isn't likely what you got out of last week's hell. Hell, it wasn't what I thought I was going to learn from our guests, even after I had done all the research and written all the questions for each guest. I had no idea last week would be a week of discussing the imperialism of U.S. business interests driven by neoliberalism that seeks to exploit workers worldwide. And if those business interests had their way, as one guest argued last week, they'd enslave us. I also took a shot at the headline writers at Jacobin, which that was fun. And we played our interview from April Fool's Day 2006, 15 years ago this week with sociologist Michael Schwartz, who was on, who was at the time one of the uh, leading voices of opposition to the 2003 invasion and occupation of Iraq. Michael is currently a distinguished teaching professor emeritus of sociology at the State University of New York at Sunnybrook in New York, where he also serves as faculty director of the Undergraduate College of Global Studies and chair of the sociology department. Michael was on back in 2006 to tell us that three years after we had been lied into a war by the administration of President George W. Bush with a very complicit establishment U.S. media, that same media was still getting it horribly wrong in their analysis of how the war was progressing. More than that, Michael reminded us of the of the thousands of protests that were taking place across Iraq immediately after the invasion. Protests that were never covered by the U.S. media, including the protests in December of 2003, where U.S. Sol soldiers opened fire on a peaceful protest, killing 13 protesters that sparked the insurgency in Fallujah and the war's biggest and most deadly battle and most challenging insurgency. But you can only hear my review of what I got out of last week's hell and Michael Schwartz reminding us how pro-war U.S. media outlets are by subscribing to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. Listen to our exclusive Patreon podcast every Friday, live at 10 a.m. Chicago time and podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell shortly after. Coming up, it's time to stop thinking of the university as a public good. Now that it is a for-profit business, we will also have some of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what are you not paranoid enough about? What are you not paranoid enough about? And we will be telling you what's coming up on this week's hell, as well as rotten history. We'll be getting that as well. This is not the media. This is hell. Yes, there was a time when the university was good for everybody, or at least 
more than more people than it helps out today. I mean, it was never helpful for everybody because, you know, racism, misogyny, you know the deal. That's because in the past, universities were not left to their own devices to finance themselves. Now that they do, they've become big business, which is not good for their neighbors. Here to help us rethink the university in a changed world, urbanist, historian, and cultural critic, Devarian L. Baldwin is author of In the Shadow of the Ivory Tower, How Universities Are Plundering Our Cities. Welcome to This is Hell, Devarian. Hey, Chuck. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. You can follow Devarian on Twitter at Devarian Baldwin. You know, the first thing I want to ask you about is a couple of time, more timely questions. Amid state budget cuts to its funding, Boise State University has responded by suspending social justice curriculum like critical race theory. What, <laughs> what impact do you think the university changing from a traditional public good to a for-profit model may have on outsider influence over curriculum, whether that's private donor influence or, you know, public funding influence? Yeah, the um, we there's been a long kind of tracking of how the Koch brothers have influenced curriculum on campuses all across the country, and various um, right wing um, donors have funded um, quote unquote student organizations on campus to push forward conservative and uh, right wing agendas. Um, there's been a uh, recent controversy at the University of Mississippi with my good colleague Professor Felder, um, who was summarily um, fired from the University of Mississippi because of his critique of the influence of donor ideas and donor money on academic freedom and ideas at that campus, which became a national controversy. So yeah, there's there's definitely precedent for this and it's, it's ramping up. So do you think that that impact and the kind of influence that it has is related to the more for-profit model that universities have? Because this is public funding that's being kept from Boise State University. This isn't private funding mm-hmm. being kept from Boise State University. So I'm just curious uh, how yeah. it might impact all monies coming into a university. I think the philanthropy and the kind of for-profit model does have an impact on funding for both public and private universities because both receive private money. I, I spent a whole chapter talking about Arizona State University, um, whose public funding went from 60% to 20%. And then and they they invested and they, they first they brought in Michael Crow from Columbia, who had a history of building himself as an academic um, entrepreneur. And he was brought to uh, Arizona State, which is the biggest university in the country with over 50,000 students on its main campus to come there and to invest in a number of for-profit um, uh, entrepreneurial model style projects that extracted wealth from uh, student workers and invited private companies to come on their tax exempt campuses. Um, but let's be clear, uh, universities have choices. This 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 a targeting of social justice projects in the midst of um, kind of austerity or, or shrinking budgets. It's a decision. It's a choice. Um, when they're making these public announcements to uh, uh, the pu- to the public about what the choice is, either we, you know, shut down or uh, invest in, in or, or divest in the basic needs of the university, or we attack these frivolous, quote unquote, frivolous enterprises like social justice, DEI projects, that's a false choice. Because what's made invisible in this conversation are all of these other units on the university campus that are rarely talked about in these budget discussions. So we're talking about the real estate department. We are talking about the technology transfer division. We're talking about the um, the development office. 
We're talking about the police force. We're talking about the data mining contracts. Those are never in the conversation. We're talking about austerity budgets um, because those are the for-profit entities that have nothing to do with teaching, teaching classes. And so what we, have, what we have here is this false narrative that institutions of higher education are primarily about the business of teaching when they haven't been that for at least four decades. And you write that these institutions, universities, have been given the keys to drive the urban economy forward by reorganizing urban spaces to best service their institutional desires as much or more than any public interest. So what is the myth that we believe in of higher education and why is that myth so attractive? if it no longer exists? Well, first of all, the idea of the university serving ex ex explicitly or exclusively serving the public good um, goes back even farther than the 1970s, which you so adequately um, laid out, which is, that, that became an important turning point. But as my good colleague Craig Wilder points out, there's been a financial uh, capitalist relationship between uni universities um, since slavery. So when slavery was the dominant uh, economy of our country, um, a number of the founding universities in this in this country were underwritten by the slave economy, or in fact had slaves uh, build the buildings on campus. So from the very inception, um, this is this is the the you know the 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 first fruits of the uh, of the relationship between capitalism and higher education. Then we go to the uh, 1890s, um, right after the Civil War, the Morrill Act, which was meant to democratize higher education, um, did so by taking land. Um, in suspect treaties from indigenous uh, um, nations uh, and gave it to states to set up the endowment for land grant public universities, both in the North and the South. And then we moved to the 1950s and 60s during the Cold War, and we have uh, universities serving as the, as, the, as the friendly face of urban renewal with uh, a change to the Federal Housing Act in 1949 that put uh, double the money in any, any any urban development project in cities that was affiliated with a university. So universities have played this facilitating role for capital's development um, over the 20th century and, some, and, and also even earlier. And so that, that must be known. But to go back to your main point about the myth, the myth is embedded within our tax code that because universities are presumed to be a public good, to serve a public good, because they provide educational services and other services that would normally have to be provided by the state, that because of that, they are presumed to be a public good and most clearly are um, exempt from property taxes and other kinds of taxes with their endowment and other, other venues. And that's critical because of that presumption then, as we move into the 1990s, when we have what is becoming a knowledge economy. So uh, industry is, has left the urban North and has fled to the global South for you know, cheaper taxes, for more exploitable labor because of uh, weaker labor laws. And we have the rise of this knowledge economy where academic research is literally being used to produce profitable goods and services and patents um, in, a, in a range of industries from pharmaceuticals to uh, um, biotech to military uh, defense weaponry. And so the university is at the center. It's, it's literally the, 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 the engine, the, the, the driving force of this new economy. And this comes at the same time that there is a growing interest in people returning back to the cities. Empty nesters, young professionals want to come back to the city. They want the urban experience, the urban experience of nightlife and uh, walkable streets and coffee shops. Um, but what this really is, that's for, from their suburban minds, the urban for them is a the campus. So you have this powerful convergence between 
city interests in trying to attract the tax base of new urbanites and universities trying to compensate for a loss in state funding that gives rise to what I call universe cities, where the campus becomes a model for the city as a form of economic and cultural and political capture, the capture of wealth. And in this process, universities become these titans of political authority. And you mentioned witnessing a 2003 protest in the neighborhood surrounding the University of Chicago, and it was all about the famed checkerboard lounge. It had been a cultural mainstay of Bronzeville, a blues shrine that stood on 43rd Street since 1972. The lounge needed restoring, but instead of providing funding, the university put together a plan to relocate the lounge from its original spot to a university-owned building inside the Hyde Park neighborhood's Harper Court shopping district. Outraged Restoring Bronzeville Advocates, that's the name of the group, Restoring Bronzeville, immediately mm-hmm. charged changed uh, or charged University of Chicago with cultural piracy. So what is meant by cultural piracy? You, the subtitle of your book is How Universities Are Plundering Our Cities. What is meant by cultural pi- uh, piracy? And is, it, are, is the business model, the urban planning model of hmm. universities a kind of colonialism? Hmm. Yes, yeah, some have called it that. Um, Many people had maybe not colonialism in the U.S. context, but uh, Duke University's has has effectively been called the plantation. Uh, uh, U Chicago has been called the plantation uh, uh, in different ways. So that 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 definitely um, is is a vital metaphor for making sense of the new financial and political arrangements. I'm glad you drew attention to a very local story with Checkerboard Lounge because it speaks directly to the story I'm trying to tell throughout the book is that at the moment in the 50s and 60s when the university became the faces of urban renewal, their response was to demolish black and brown neighborhoods that surrounded the communities to maintain property values and to keep white folks from the suburbs and the city coming to the universities and researchers and investors. So they basically fortified themselves into these campus areas and destroyed both residential properties and also commercial properties that could draw quote unquote, mixed communities uh, to their neighborhoods. But by the time we get to the 90s um, and this this desire for urban life comes, they're left without any amenities to draw people in. And so their response is to extend the campus out into the communities that they had once divested from, that they had once left to die. And so the Checkerboard Lounge is a perfect example of that, that for years, the University of Chicago had been lampooned as the place where fun comes to die because they had all the laboratories and the classrooms, but they didn't have the nightlife and the, and the activities of fun that people wanted to come for campus. And so their response to that was, wow, we see our students going to the checkerboard lounge. We see our faculty going to the checkerboard lounge. What will we do instead of saving it? But actually we'll say we're gonna save it in the name of historic preservation. But our idea of saving the lounge is picking it up and moving it to our Harper Court shopping district, the, 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 the very site that we want to target as the place for reviving kind of recreational and commercial commercial development so that people will stay on campus, people will spend their money on campus, um, that we can draw investors and the top faculty and researchers and their families to campus. So we'll bring the Checkerboard Lounge to our to our campus, our, our, our downtown Hyde Park, the, the university downtown, um, to prevent what marketing executives call leakage. So the money will stay on campus and and we'll, and we'll call it historic preservation. And so when uh, restoring Brownsville advocates have been trying to restore the lounge for years, they say, well, wait a minute. The very reason why we cannot be successful here is because of the divestment and the control that the University of Chicago has had on the South Side since 1892. 
And so your divestment strategies in the 1950s and 60s had a direct impact on our development. And now in the 90s and 2000s, when you want to expand out, your poaching of our lounge in our neighborhood is another example. It's the flip side of the same coin. It's another form of divestment, of, 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 of erasure, of theft, of piracy. And then if you go south of University of Chicago into the Woodlawn neighborhood, uh, there will be, there's reported to be in five years, more students living in Woodlawn than actually live in High Park. And for years, Woodlawn has been a so-called no-go zone, a, a war-torn neighborhood that is now being uh, ravaged by university investments in dormitories and uh, a, a, a line boutique uh, uh, hotels. And then the university partnership with the Obama Library has ramped up property values and investments in that neighborhood, whereby people who've lived there for decades when nobody wanted to live there, now are, be, are, are fearful that the property values will not allow them to stay. And so this is the new urban renewal that um, you know, that neighborhoods that surround campuses are facing. And these are the immediate neighborhoods that are facing this, these primarily black and brown neighborhoods, but they are the canary in the coal mine because as universities and colleges and their affiliated medical schools are becoming the biggest employers, real estate holders, healthcare providers, and policers in cities all across the country. So not college towns, cities. What's happening in these neighborhoods that surround campuses is going to impact cities writ large because universities in those capacities are setting the wage ceiling. They're determining the land value. They're establishing the policing priorities for cities across the board, LA, Chicago, New York, Atlanta, Detroit, Cleveland, uh, St. Louis. So not just Madison or Columbus, Ohio, or Gainesville, Florida. This is becoming a story that's gonna affect us all. So all I could think of is how Yes, these are operating with urban er within urban areas, but then you have these, like a college town, like East Lansing or mm -hmm. South Bend, that is totally dependent, it would seem, on a university. When it comes to the University of Chicago buying up the checkerboard lounge to bring in their new development where they hope students would spend their money instead of in the neighboring community, they would be spending it at their places. Do universities often have this kind of company town business model when they lock in all the student spending do do successful universities with students spending necessarily mean benefits for the surrounding community or is it just about trying to be kind of a new pullman mm, that's a great question uh the phrase company town i i, I traveled across the country to conduct over 100 interviews for this book in every town college town or city that i that i, I worked in the the term company town came up because of the way in which universities control the labor, the healthcare, the policing, the housing costs uh, in, in these areas. And, and you make a great point about kind of value capture um, on these campuses. So at Arizona State, but other schools as well, this is this isn't just them, but they built a downtown campus. So first of all, they had like five campuses across the uh the the area, the region in in um in Phoenix, between Phoenix and Tempe, but they, they have five campuses. They, they built a downtown campus with city money, with a municipal bond under the guise that it would spur development and support small businesses around the area where the campus would sit because it would bring in a, a, a built-in consumer base of students, faculty, and researchers. But then the very contract that the university holds with um, paraphernalia companies and food companies 
um, required students if they lived on campus to buy food, uh, you know, contracts. And so the very project, the very promise that was offered to get the public money to build this campus worked against the, the, the residents and the businesses in the neighborhood because these students had to purchase food affiliated with the campus. So Chick-fil-A, Starbucks, uh, Trader Joe's, et cetera. Um, that is where they had to shop if they lived on campus. And so these many universities, especially state schools, bank on these exclusive contracts where everything that the students do primarily is routed through businesses that are affiliated with the university. We can look at the shops at um, the shops in New Haven around Yale University. We can look at the, the businesses, as I said, around, around Arizona State downtown and in Tempe. Um, we can look at the shops um, around Madison and Wisconsin. We can even look at some of the uh, businesses affiliated with the um, with NYU and Columbia and very urban, very diversified uh, retail and restaurants uh, sites that yes, you can go out into the cities and support these, these the, the local businesses, but there's a cost and there is a discouragement in terms of the very infrastructure, the business model of universities to keep the money on campus. Back in like 1998 or 1999, we had an interview with Rebecca Solnit about her book, Hollow City, mm -hmm. that was about the gentrification of San Francisco. In that book, she points towards artists and bohemians moving into neighborhoods that artists who are seeking cheap space and large spaces to uh, create their art and how that gentrified San Francisco. But I don't recall in that book her discussing the university. What happens when we see the artist as the pioneer of gentrification <laughs> in a neighborhood instead of the student? Yeah, that's a good question. I think this, these things work in phases. So um, as I talk to many you know, planners and developers around the country, um, they talk about these different phases of development once the urban became hot again. And so you have the hipster artist as gentrifier because you have these warehouses that are retrofitted for artist housing and artist studios. Um, but then once those that, that development rises and um, the neighborhood upscales, those hipsters get pushed out for other kinds of developments like stadiums or convention centers. And then in the 2000s, the meds and eds, medical schools and universities became the next phase of development in that process. Um, and so they come though with a certain kind of leverage that, you, that hipsters and artists just don't have. They have these relationships. Many people that work in the city, in, in city hall or in political, have political power graduated from the very universities that they're working with. So they, they share this cultural capital in, this, in these relationships. And that's important to understand. They also, university presidents have leverage. Um, they, in the, in the current knowledge economy, when they're bringing in, for example, Northwestern and Evanston, when they were able to produce um, in their laboratories Lyrica, the anti-epileptic drug, that brought revenue to the area, maybe not directly to Evanston, but the promises that other um, uh, startup companies, labs, uh, research uh, divisions will come to the city, will come to the area, um, and their families will come and raise up the property tax base. But the problem here is that for all the things that universities celebrate in terms of their investments in the city, so in terms of jobs or um, tutoring programs or the investment mag magnet that they become, that makes completely invisible that that kind of investment and that financial benefit is developed on the backs of the very people who sit 
in the places where the universities exist. And what I mean by that is that the property tax exemption that goes to the university is directly extracted from the dollars that would go to public schools, to roads, and thinking about Texas right now, to maintaining electrical grids, um, in North and in Chicago, you know, snow removal matters at Evanston, right? Um, these things that the property tax money would go directly to those things. And so there was an amazing story in Princeton, New Jersey, in the historically black neighborhood of Witherspoon Jackson, where they saw that their property taxes were going up and they couldn't understand why. And then they realized that they were sitting next to buildings that were tied to Princeton University and they were labs. And not only were these labs, but these were labs that were producing uh, uh, um, intellectual property that was generating millions of dollars in royalties that were going back to the university. So while these, these buildings were in the um, neighborhood, or near the neighborhood, you know, and, you know, and generating wealth, that wealth wasn't going to the neighborhood, it was going to the university. And, and moreover, the neighborhood was paying for and increased property taxes. So now in 2016, they won a multi-million dollar lawsuit to gain some compensation for their loss in uh, property tax revenues that went into a fund. And one of the uh, plaintiffs um, colorfully called Princeton and other universities hedge funds that conduct classes. And now one of the critics of my work has said, well, wait a minute, all, you could call any company a hedge fund or a company, et cetera, because they receive tax exemptions. But the, they argued in this critique that the investments outweigh the costs. But I would argue they don't. That, um, and in fact, the, the investments and the dollars that get generated by university development and, and, and laboratory, et cetera, is actually built on the money extracted from the neighborhoods in which they sit. And that line item is rarely factored into um, the equation when universities celebrate their quote unquote economic impact. It's a phrase we hear a lot, but the extraction of wealth from the neighborhoods is rarely factored into that equation. So what about when it comes to taxes? Let's just say somebody is uh, adamantly anti-tax, and so they don't care where the taxes are cut. They just want to see taxes cut. And then when federal funding is cut to education, suddenly their property tax is going up. When they are seeking this anti-tax position, in the end, when it comes to universities and the uh, communities that surround them, do the communities that surround them actually end up paying higher taxes by voting against taxes. Mm. Yeah, they do. Yeah. I mean, I haven't factored out all the numbers, but by voting against taxes, when you sit in, a, in, a, in an area that's, that's, that's dominated by a tax-exempt entity, you pay more taxes. There's no question about that. And I spoke to not just residents, but also small business owners in, ver in various towns. And so they, every year, and, you, and people that own homes know this, the city will um, factor in the mill, the mill rate. You know how much um, proper uh, homeowners will have to pay on the average because of the needs of the schools and because of infrastructure. And so some states factor in, actually factor in the value of, of university properties, yet they don't contribute. Some states don't factor it in, or some municipalities. So just imagine if you are in a municipality like in Phoenix, where they factor in the value of the tax-exempt university buildings, and yet the universities don't pay. You eat the additional cost. 
Exactly. And that's what happens. Right. And that's the other part I couldn't really, I'm trying to figure out, I mean, you've already been telling us who benefits from this and who doesn't benefit from this, but are there, are these good investments for the city when it comes to the bottom line of a city budget, not necessarily the people of the city and what happens, you know, when the bottom line is uh, the budget and not what's best for the people of the city, I guess is a bigger question, but are these, are these good investments for the city when it comes to their bottom line? No, um, and we see right now, especially during the pandemic, but even a little bit earlier, um, see, especially smaller, smaller or mid-sized cities like New Haven and Providence have been waging battle with the state house for decades to in some way make universities um, uh, become, you know, to compensate for the losses. And so there's a, there's a, a very popular term called a pilot, payment in lieu of taxes. Um, that cities are trying to make because it's 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 in almost in all fifty states because universities are nonprofits they are not required to pay taxes um, as a four hundred one c three nonprofit entity and so even in big cities like Philadelphia right now during the pandemic there is a a, a residence and community organization called Pen for Pilots which is students faculty and residents who were finally able to make the University of Pennsylvania. Um, offer some kind of compensation for their loss because they said, look at our school system. Um, You claim to be this great educator of educators, and yet your very existence destroys our school system. Now, Now, the University of Pennsylvania was very savvy and that they didn't even call the money they gave. They gave $100 million over 10 years. And everyone said, we celebrate that. That's great. And we appreciate that. But that doesn't compare to the billions of dollars that you would be responsible for if your properties were were properly assessed. That's number one. But number two is I'm sure the lawyers made sure that they did not even call that money a pilot. They called it a gift, which then doesn't require them to be um, responsible or make any public statements about any kind of long term or structural responsibility that the university holds to the neighborhoods in which they sit at a long-term basis. This is a one-time gift of $100 million over 10 years. So if you imagine that they receive millions of dollars um, in, 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 in tuition, they also receive, still they still receive public money, even if it's less, private schools. And they also receive millions of dollars this past year from the CARES Act. That $10 million a year for 10 years is a drop in the bucket. And so, but you do see cities all over the country now starting to raise the banner or raise the flag around what is this pilot thing? Can we get that in our neighborhood or town? But it's still, this is only voluntary. Even the city of Boston in 2012 um, acted in agreement with all, and it's, a, it's primarily a college town, um, in fact, ma- manufactured an agreement with the, the neighboring universities and other nonprofits, those that, um, that had properties that were valued in over, um, I think, $15 million in properties, they would be asked, again, asked to pay 25% of the assessed value of their property tax or what they would have to pay, 25% of what they would have to pay if their, proper, if their property was properly assessed. That was voluntary. None of the schools actually pay 25% of what they would normally pay if, the properties, if their properties were assessed properly. So that just shows you they don't they they don't do it they don't have to do it they don't do it um, and it has a direct impact on the infrastructure and the budgets of the cities in which we sit. Um, just just in Evanston alone, the battle between Northwestern and the city of Evanston over taxes goes back to 1878. 
in the case of the people versus university. And throughout the 20th century, um, sorry guys, I know that they're, they're your funders, but this is this is this fact, right? They, they, don't, they don't fund they, us, don't worry, we don't get a penny from them. Oh, okay, okay, so, <laughs> so okay, okay, fantastic, okay. Um, <laughs> there's There have been at least four or five battles between um, Evanston and, the, and Northwestern around some kind of compensation. And so right now we have this landmark case so, and it's, it's still controversial, but land still landmark nonetheless around the city of Evanston offering reparations. Um, and it's amazing that Northwestern has pays, will pay nothing to that, even though they are directly culpable and a part of the inequities that the racial inequities that are created um, in the city of Evanston because of their footprint, because of their political power in terms of, we think about labor, labor costs and laboring on university campuses. We think about faculty and researchers, but the biggest labor pool on campuses are the uh, low wage Ivy Tower workers in the food service, groundskeeping, support staff, security. And those are primarily women and people of color who make much less than a living wage, um, who um, and unions uh, and universities are notoriously anti-union. And so, and because they are such a powerful employer in cities, their low wages set the wage ceiling, not just for their employees, but for employees throughout their cities. If they offer living wage, other employees in cities would have to offer, have to match that in order to keep their employees. So the impact of universities is profound. So what hope do you have for Evanston? The city council passed an eight to eight to one vote. Uh, reparations, reparations, many of which are focused on helping out African-American homeowners from the 1950s and 1960s. To what degree can a city, if we can make this in more of a general question, to what degree can a community that is surrounding a university on their own address the inequities that have been caused by the placement of the university and its tax-exempt tax status? It's a great question. Um, I, I have plenty of stories, wonderful, uplifting stories, um, not all perfect or complete, but people have the power to determine their livelihoods and to make these institutions responsible um, in their neighborhoods. If they're going to, if they're going to make claims, the important point about universities is that because they claim to be a public good, there is an onus, there is a lever to make them more responsible. I argue that this, the book that I'm offering is an opportunity for communities to talk to each other, to share information, to share stories about what's possible and strategies for making these institutions in their neighborhoods more responsible. So for example, um, there are things called uh, pilots. We talked about pilots. There are, there are more and more cities who are enforcing pilots. Um, there are community benefits agreements. When the University of Southern California built a new development in South Central and when Columbia expanded into, Man into West Harlem, these weren't perfect agreements, but they enforced um, the cities, the cities in which they sit, um, created community benefits agreements that included um, tuition for you know, the children of the neighborhoods that include a certain amount of money every year to build public schools and neighborhoods, firehouses, um, tax, uh, I'm sorry, um, zip code specific job training and job um, uh, off offering in construction. Um, uh, you could offer, you could ask for um, affordable housing uh, uh, trusts so that as property values go up, and it's something that people are fighting for right now with, a, with around the Obama, Obama library is an affordable housing trust so that when property values go up, there can be monies to offset the rising cost. Um, you can 
argue for um, community-based planning boards with governable enforceable uh, power so that any development that's university built goes into a neighborhood, that there must be some oversight on the part of a community-based planning board. Um, we can we can we can require or insist, for example, as well, that um, endowments, um, endowments are tax exempt money or financial assets that are donated to nonprofit organizations um, like universities. They're required to spend at least five percent. Most of them only spend five percent. We can push universities to say, OK, wait a minute, you just spend three percent on 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 neighborhood development, on social justice issues. So just imagine 3% of a billion dollar endowment. That would be huge. And such a small drop in the bucket for a university. Um, food distribution. Um, during the pandemic, the University of Chicago um, um, sent unused food and put it together in food packages for um, from dining halls to communities of need. Why wouldn't that be a normal thing throughout the year? Some schools argue liability issues. They've been arguing that for years, but if they've been doing it during the pandemic, why couldn't, they, but that should be a part of the general ecosystem of universities in the neighborhoods they sit. Um, right now, during the, um, the, the big dance, the, uh, the March Madness, you see some students, some um, athletes walking around with shirts that say hashtag not NCAA property and saying that the name, image, and likeness of these athletes, the money should go to those athletes. Um, just a few years back, your, your quarterback at Northwestern, Kane Coulter, tried to organize a union. Why? the neighborhoods that produce these young black and brown men to produce billions and millions and billions in wealth for the NCAA and for these schools and the big 10 and other divisions. Why shouldn't some of that money go back to the neighborhoods from which they came? These are the things that can happen. Um, uh, India Walton in Buffalo helped create a community land trust as she saw the medical school encroaching in the black fruit belt neighborhood. So they could control the land values in the neighbors and they sit. Now she's running for mayor of Buffalo. So these are the things that have been done and can be done. The University of Winnipeg, they fired um, Aramark or Chartwells or one of the other big, um, you know, uh, North American food service multinationals that works with universities and hospitals. They created their own food service company that required 65% of the workers to be from community, communities of need and 65% of their uh, raw materials to come from local farms within a 65 mile kilometer radius. They're trying right now to make that food service cooperatively owned so that workers there will receive um, uh, um, not just wages, but shares. So these are things that are possible. They can happen They're right in our faces. I can hear all the time from university administrators saying, well, you have all these critiques, what's the alternative? These are the alternatives. This is what's possible. It's right in our face. We have the decision, the capacity to transition and transform profit universities into people's universities. It's, it's, it's here. It's been done in the same time period of the urban renewal in the 50s and 60s. You had black and brown and their white allies, students and residents fighting back in New York, in L.A., in Chicago. Um, Crane Junior College got converted into Malcolm X College. They created a prison annex so that residents that were incarcerated could take classes. They um they fired the police, the the um the off-duty CPD police officers and hired an unarmed black-owned security uh, security company. These things are within our reach. They're in our history. You have shards of the possibility in the present. There is no reason why we can't turn the profit university into a people's university. Well, what happens when universities 
become the source of instead of the solution for social crises like low-wage labor? What happens when the university is no longer seen as a place for social justice issues to be discussed and instead is seen as a place of actually imposing social injustices? Mm -hmm. What's happening right now? Uh, the, The graduate student workers at Columbia University, shout out to them right now, are on the picket line as we speak saying no more that the crisis becomes um, untenable to the point where people begin to see in a very clear way um, the fiscal and the inhumane and unjust and closed, despite all the claims about being open, free, public peoples, we see the profit and private interests of these entities and we respond, we fight back. After the, um, the killing of George Floyd and the concern around police brutality, very quickly, Students and and campus residents began to say, wait a minute, not just CPD, but also UCPD, also Northwestern PD. And people were in the streets this summer chanting community, not cops in Evanston around these very issues. These injustices can't hold and they're not holding. And we're seeing the, the possibilities unfolding right before us. One of the things that we've heard so often on our show is that neoliberalism has never been voted into power. It seems like somebody gets voted into power like Margaret Thatcher, and all of a sudden there's a drastic turn towards neoliberalism. When it comes to the university as urban planning model, to what extent are these models put in place with any democratic participation from the community where it will be employed? That's a great question. Uh, in, in my chapter on New York, which is what probably the most egregious example, is that you, you had universities instituting adv- community advisory boards in the name of transparency and democratic process. But as both in the case of NYU and Columbia, as soon as the community advisory boards uh, decided or made decisions in ways that did not align with the university interests, they were disbanded. And then the decision went to the actual community boards in the city of New York. But the, and they both vote, both the community board number two and community board number nine in Greenwich Village in Harlem, both voted against university expansion. But those community boards do not have um, enforceable power. And so then ultimately the relationships between university administrators and city administrators, as I said before, they've aligned around turning cities into campuses and they vote in favor of university campus expansion in more in more times than not. Um, the you see small points like it's an example in Buffalo where the city transferred um, campus area properties to the community land trust. You have you have moments of, th- of things like that, but overall the relationships, the, the shared interests, the interest convergence between uh, uh, you know the neoliberal uh, municipal needs and neoliberal university needs align in a way that undermines political authority. And this is why we need to take back that story. We need to take back that point that that these um, advisory boards and these community planning boards need to have enforceable power. If you are going to have a private or even a public university policing force, policing non-student residents in the name of community safety, and yet they are not governed by freedom of information laws, (laughs) <laughs> that's that's preposterous. And that's what's happening at in 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 at the University of Chicago. It was going to happen at Johns Hopkins um, until the communities protested and sat in in the administrative shame building for a month. That you're going to have private police with public authority 
and no public enforcement, no public oversight. And so these, this is the most clearest example, but, but, but university police are just simply the most violent and most visceral, visceral um, uh, kind of expression of university-based urban renewal. They set the table to make neighborhoods available for university expansion. And this is what we've been seeing in examples across the country, that the university police are the front lines for what people are calling gentrification, what I call displacement. That secretive nature of universities, and I would I would assume I shouldn't though, uh, more secretive than it was prior to the lack of federal funding, prior to it being a for business model. Uh, how does that affect the relationship between the student and the university, especially when the student is now seen much less as a student and much more as a consumer? Great. Yes. So until very recently. Uh, many of you that went to school in the, in the 80s, 90s, and even in the 2000s, you saw that when you first got to your um, your dormitory and you got your first bit of mail, one of the first things uh, that you got was, it was stuff with, with credit card um, uh, offers. Um, this is what we mean by the you know student as consumer and the alumni as shareholders and the land surrounding the neighbor around the university as real estate interest. So it changes the relationship in profound ways because we hear this talk about public interest and the public good, but the actual interactions with students is um, consumers. They become a captive consumer base in terms of what they eat, what they wear, um, what they purchase, um, the, the job that they hold when they leave. Um, and this is something that we've had a bigger conversation around more broadly. This also touches the fact that now most parents make decisions about what school they want their children to go to based on school being primarily, almost exclusively, a career development venue. And so then universities follow suit and they begin to orient their curriculums around almost exclusively career development. So the humanities and even the social sciences get short shrift. And then we see an increase in focusing on STEM and business and finance. Um, even though most, if you talk to most um, financial houses, they don't want a student that has a degree in economics. They actually want, they actually want well-rounded people. I'm not trying to give a plug to financial companies, but I'm just saying that um, they don't even want that. But the entire enterprise, the entire, I hate to use the word enterprise, the entire mission of the university is organized around market interests. Um, and the students are equally a part of that in terms of the ways in which they become um, commodities. Could From the point at which they accept they, they make acceptance to the point where they graduate. Go ahead. I was just going to ask, uh, could the university, can, can they argue that, you know, they need these low wages, they need this tax exempt status to have the advantage within the real estate sector, that they need these or else they will not exist. Can they claim, you know, mm. I, I don't want to say poverty, but that this is the only way they can continue because of federal funding being cut? Well, the problem with that is that while they're saying that they're receiving millions of dollars from the CARES Act and, you know, schools like Yale and uh, Harvard, but even some smaller schools have multi-billion dollar endowments that they don't want to touch because they're arguing that that's, we need that money for the long term life of the university in case of emergency. If right now is not an emergency, I don't know what is, first of all. But second of all, universities receive tuition and state money every year. And so what happens with that mindset of only spending 5% of their endowment is that um, it, it, it creates what some critics have called um, uh, uh, endowment hoarding. 
So that's H-O-A-R-D-I-N, not H-O-E. <laughs> Endowment hoarding, whereby um, the money just sits and it's not doing any kind of work. So ultimately, because these endowments are placed in money market accounts, um, the universities spend more, more money on their financial advisors every year than they do in investing in the communities where they sit. And more, and, and, and the irony or the funny thing is that universities actually aren't arguing what you're saying. That would, that would be more honest. They're, they're, they aren't arguing that we need to exploit workers. We need to um, you know, exploit neighborhoods around us to, to exist. They're saying we're not doing that and we're actually doing more to help them than we are to hurt them. If they were saying we need to exploit you, then at least cities and communities could act accordingly with their political power and the leverage they hold to make universities more responsible if we were having that kind of honest conversation. I wish they would say that. Do universities seek out areas that have weak political participation in order to develop a new campus? Mm. Yeah, um, a lot of universities, especially urban universities, which, I, which is what I mostly focus on in the book, um, sat in neighborhoods that become, became increasingly black and brown throughout the 1950s and 60s and gave rise to what we call the urban crisis. Um, as they sat there and as the business model changed from uh, divestment and kind of uh, uh, fortification towards expansion, being in those neighborhoods of, col of color benefited them because, those, because of a history of redlining and uh, you know, urban renewal and restrictive covenants that, 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 that created an alignment between race and declining value. Um, it benefited them because these neighborhoods were in relatively um, sitting on relatively cheap land and they were politically vulnerable. And so they took advantage of that. And that's the power. We have been speaking with urbanist, historian and cultural critic Devarian L. Baldwin, author of In the Shadow of the Ivory Tower, How Universities Are Plundering Our Cities. And Devarian, I'm really looking forward to playing this interview live on WNUR at Northwestern University on Saturday morning. This is going to be fantastic <laughs> for the people of Evanston. So I'm so glad you're on the show this week to start off our week. So, uh, Darian, I've got one last question for you. And what we do sure. with all of our guests is the final question is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you <laughs> might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your, uh, your response. You write that when Richard Florida introduced us to the creative class, many dying cities could finally see a future after the fall of factories. Florida prophesied that innovations produced in hospitals, laboratories, tech startups, and design studios would power the economic rebirth of cities. He explained that in order to attract creative types, cities must redesign their landscape around a street-level culture that blurs the lines between work and play. Florida has recently pulled back on his grand claims, a little late, about the creative city admitting that the increased settlement of creative types can actually heighten inequalities. So is the knowledge economy a gentrification strategy? Because gentrification leads to inequality. President Obama famously spoke out against inequalities, yet was a huge supporter of the knowledge economy. So is the knowledge mm -hmm. economy a gentrification and inequality strategy? No, I don't think it has. I think it's, it's that's how it's functioning right now, but it doesn't have to function that way. If the knowledge economy, the, po the problem is that because it's a knowledge economy, it benefits from the educational shelter that 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 comes with being aligned with higher education. So it allows 
for-profit interests and functions to work in a way that are not held up to public scrutiny because it's affiliated with universities and colleges with higher education. If the knowledge economy was held to the scrutiny that other, and we don't do a good job with, with keeping abreast of or, or holding accountable private industry, but at least if we treated the knowledge economy and held it up to the scrutiny of private industry, um, we could have a different arrangement. We could pay workers living wages. We could um, invest in the communities in which these laboratories sit. We could um, um, create construction uh, training and job training programs for these neighborhoods. Um, we, we can pay athletes. We can, you know, uh, Lyrica can say, take some of the royalties and Northwestern can take some of the royalties from Lyrica and invest in these neighborhoods. Uh, can, uh, police, campus police do not have to be armed um, they're, they're, they're primarily to protect the investments of the university. Um, they do the, the things they claim to do, for example, you know, um, the things that they should be doing a good job with is sexual violence and, uh, drug and drug and alcohol abuse. They do a horrible job at that because that's not their job. Their job is to protect the brand of the university. They could do better. So, so, so the point here is that it's, we don't have a either or reality, either we have the knowledge economy as it is, or we don't have investments. That's not what's happening here the investments are not even being brought into the conversation. The money from these investments from this knowledge economy aren't even part of the dialogue. If we put on the table all of the line items, the full budget, the full infrastructure, the full ecosystem of the knowledge economy, we could have a more robust or more humane or more just environment for everyone involved in the process. And this is a fantastic way to start the week. Devarian, I cannot thank you enough for being on the show. You can follow Devarian on Twitter at Devarian Baldwin. He's also the author of Chicago's New Negroes Modernity, The Great Migration and Black Urban Life, and co-editor with Minka Makalani of the essay collection Escape from New York, The New Negro Renaissance Beyond Harlem. Thank you so much for being on our show. And you can count on the fact that we are going to annoy you for the rest of your life to get you to come back on our show. <laughs> Just a quick note, the book comes out tomorrow. Please pick it up or please, you know, grab one and share with your friends. Um, and listen, this is hell. I've, I've followed y'all for a while. You're great. I thank you for giving people like me a voice to, 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 to uplift other voices that don't always get the spotlight or get opportunity to share their ideas. So I thank you so much for the time. Devarian, I'm always surprised when somebody actually listens to the radio show. So thank you very much. I really appreciate it. <laughs> Take care, man. I really appreciate it. And I'm telling you, we're going to annoy you to get, come back on the show do. Thanks. All right. Live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing. This is hell. Jess, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell? And tell us how our listeners are answering so far. This week's question from hell is, what are you not paranoid enough about? <laughs> that framing is just great. Yeah. <laughs> um, Laddie O says, mindfulness. Okay. Uh, Victor T, sleeping pills. <laughs> um, Mez M, radicalized Christian terror. Um, Louis D, where the other half dozen got off to. Um, what are you not paranoid enough about? Mark A, Q anonymous alcoholics. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah. Um, Michael L, cleaning my CPAP. David Z. An Adam Waffen NSA mashup. Ugh. <laughs> uh, Benjamin C. That my chewing gum will lose its flavor on the bedpost overnight. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> and last, Greg M. 
the causal link between blindness, masturbation, and God's all-seeing eye. <laughs> I'm working on that right now. <laughs> uh, the person with our favorite answer to this week's question, Mel, wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can see all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question on our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us, but you must have... Your answer in by the end of Thursday's show. Thanks to all of you for checking out all the ways you can support This Is Hell by going to our website, thisishell.com, and clicking on support. Thanks this week goes out for the support we received over the weekend from Magnificent Me and Brett B. Magnificent and Brett, thank you so much for your commitment to This Is Hell. It is truly appreciated. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, globby, globby, gory, rotten history. In rotten history, March 29th, 1985, 36 years ago today, the Belgian singer-songwriter Jean Deckers died at the age of 52 years old. Formerly a a Catholic nun, Deckers had experienced 15 minutes of fame in 1963 for a song called Dominique, which told the story of St. Dominic, a 13th century popularizer of the Catholic Rosary. Think of the Rosary as a kind of 13th century switch, but without Mario Kart. In French-speaking countries, the catchy folkish tune was credited to Sur Sourire, or Sister Smile. But in English, Deckers was known simply as the singing nun because Sister Smile was too complicated for English speakers, I guess. Okay. Dominique was a huge novelty hit in several countries, including the United States, where it kept Louie Louie by the Kingsman out of the number one spot on the charts. And I'm guessing preachers across the country were having a field day comparing the two songs as a battle between good and evil, God and Satan. Dominique versus Louis Louis. Dominique also earned several hundred thousand dollars in royalties, but since Deckers had taken a religious vow of poverty, and I swear this is hell has taken that same vow of poverty, the money from Dominique all went to her convent. Three years later, disenchanted with convent life and suffering from depression, which go kind of hand in hand, she left the nunnery and moved in with her longtime friend Annie Pache, who eventually became her lover. Deckers tried to continue her singing career with songs like Sister Smile is Dead in a pro-contraceptive ballad called The Golden Pill. Really? Hats off to Ronaldo for finding this rotten history. But the new records alienated her old fans and did not sell. You think the, the kind of people who will listen to and buy a song celebrating the rosary are not likely to be fans of songs about dead nuns or contraceptives? Deckers and Pache then opened a school for children with disabilities. Awful nice of them, but in the late 1970s, the Belgian government demanded more than half a million Belgian francs in back income taxes, or about 63,000 U.S. dollars. That's all. Somebody could have chipped in, I'm sure. Deckers pleaded poverty, explaining their former convent and the record company had taken all the money from her only hit record. Unfortunately, she had not kept paperwork or receipts, so she could not prove her case and was held liable for the taxes. The convent denied any responsibility, which sounds so, so Catholic. And of course, the record company offered nothing, which sounds so, so capitalist. Desperate for funds, Deckers <laughs> released a disco version of Dominique, which bombed. Because of course it did. She and Pache were forced to close their school, and in 1985, they made a suicide pact. They each took a lethal dose of sleeping pills with alcohol and were buried together in a Belgian cemetery. Now that's rotten history, and Ronaldo, 
you have outdone yourself. Finally, in rotten history, March 31st, 1914, 107 years ago this Wednesday at the county jail in Wagoner, Oklahoma, a small town about 40 miles southeast of Tulsa, the jailer, a man named Pete Ryan, was told that a police officer was waiting outside with a prisoner. Ryan opened the door and found a dozen men in hoods pointing guns at him. So was he surprised to see there were more than one police officer outside? The Klansmen were looking for a 17-year-old black girl named Marie Scott who made a meager living as a sex worker in a poor section of town where young white men were known to go at night for drinking, gambling, and illicit sex. A few days earlier, Marie had been attacked by a group of white farm boys, including a youth ironically named Lem Peace, P-A-C-E, who raped her and then left. Marie had caught up with Peace a short time later at a nearby dance hall where she pulled out a knife, stabbed him to death, and was quickly arrested. So, Peace was stabbed to death for rape, which is an awful sentence. Now the armed and hooded men at the jail entrance were looking for Marie. They overpowered police officer Ryan, the cop not wearing the hood, and grabbed his keys. They quickly found Marie, but a noose put a noose around her neck and dragged her kicking and screaming into the town's main street where they threw the rope over a telephone pole and hanged her. She hung there all morning, dead, as townspeople went about their business, their daily, regular business, and let history remember that the people of Wagoner, Oklahoma, were pure freaking evil. Just after lunchtime, the county sheriff finally showed up and cut her down. No one was ever held legally responsible for a rape or for the lynching. Again, Ronaldo, I'm speechless, other than to say, wow, that is really really rotten history and this really is hell Jess please tell us who is on tomorrow's Tuesday's show also beginning at 10 a.m. Central Time tomorrow we're speaking with Andrew Bosovich on his Tom Dispatch article on shedding an obsolete past Biden defers to the blob uh, now you've offered Bosovich I'm never sure if it's Basovich Basovich Bosovich now I gotta definitely figure it out I've interviewed this guy like seven times <laughs> you'd figure I would get it right by now so Wednesday we don't know what's happening but what's happening on Thursday's show yeah Wednesday we don't know what ha- what's happening but on Thursday's show we're speaking with Ben Ehrenreich on his article we are hurtling toward global suicide for the new republic. You ever read anything by his uh, mom, Barbara Ehrenreich? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I read uh, New Labor and the New Deal, yeah. Yeah, those are pretty good. She's a good writer. Yeah, she's good. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, podcast, live stream host, whatever this is. Producing today's show is Jess Lipka. Thanks to Devarian Baldwin, our guest, Jess Lipka, our producer, producer Alex Jerry, who booked today's guest. And thanks to Ronaldo Magaldi for really outdoing yourself in rotten history this week. This week's hangover cure is watermelon. We told you so. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.